Welcome to Keep Calm and Carry On Investing, a podcast dedicated to providing long-term investors in the stock market the clarity that they need to withstand all the noise and distractions they face on a daily basis. I'm your host, Daniel Paris, and I hope that you'll join me for periodic discussions with investment professionals, as well as my own musings on investment theory and capital market practices. My guest today is Jeff Kosnett. Jeff is the editor, sort of kind of the publisher of Kiplinger's Investing for Income, a longtime columnist for Kiplinger's Personal Finance, and a, a longtime employee of the Kiplinger's organization, coming up on 40 years, and is in a, just a great position to share with us his, his thoughts uh, on uh, investing these days. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Glad to be here. So you joined Kiplinger's. We went over your, your bio beforehand. You were trained as a journalist, uh, went to Northwestern, a great uh, journalism school, and bounced around for newspapers, and then ended up uh, joining Kiplinger's in 1982, as I understand. Is that correct? That is correct. And so you have been writing on investing now for essentially 40 years, just shy of 40 years. It's true, and it's hard to believe that that much time has gone by because I still remember the very first days when I was at the Kips, and I remember how high interest rates were, and we were still worried about inflation and recessions, and didn't envision that there'd be a really great environment for investors coming along that arrived shortly after I started and has pretty much continued to this day with a few interruptions. Well, that, that's exactly why I was so delighted to, to get you on the show is that, you know, many investors or observers of this system, uh, rightly or wrongly, you know, give precedence to interest rates and expectations of interest rates. And of course, for uh, modern investors or just participants in the economic system, 1981, 1982 is the high water mark of interest rates. The yield on the, the 10-year in, in 1981-82, is 13%, 14%, 15%, depending on the month. We're now down to about 60, 70 basis points. It hasn't been exactly a, a perfectly smooth decline, but it has been, uh, you know, broadly speaking, a, a straightforward decline. And so I think you're uniquely positioned to answer, you know, this, this core question about investing in uh, very high interest rates and investing in very low interest rates, and so that that's that's why I think uh, our listeners will uh, appreciate having you on board. You you've been had a particular focus. Just frame that before we get into that. You've had a particular focus for much of that time, and which is on income. Can you explain how you, you know, you, you've ended up being on the Kiplinger's income side of the well, equation? One of the jobs I had was. Um, to do a lot of our sort of annual economic forecasting. Um, so anyway, I spent a lot of time uh, interviewing economists and thinking about growth and interest rates and inflation. And as this went by, I came into contact with an awful lot of uh, bonds fund managers and interest rate experts and people in that realm. And I had some colleagues who seemed to live and breathe stocks too much, and I didn't really feel the same way. So I decided that I would bounce them off and that our readers, as well as our organization, needed somebody to really give full-time focus to uh, to uh, yield and interest rates and inflation and dividends and this kind of stuff. And so I kind of fell into that and uh, kept with it. And it turned out that that was a very wise decision because ever since um, both interest rates 
started going down and since inflation went away, I mean, this has been a major, major focus of, of many of our readers and many of your clients. Absolutely. Uh, let's let's get right to it. What what was investing for income like in 1982 in the in the mid 80s with interest rates so high? We are used to this paucity of income right now, but uh, choosing between a 12% CD and a 13% CD, it's really hard to imagine what what that would have been like. Right. Well, I got I got married in 1980, and my wife and I, you know, were pretty new to. Maryland at, at the time, and we were envisioning someday buying a house despite the ridiculously high interest rates. And we just shoveled a lot of money in every week or every month into um, money market funds that were paying uh, these same yields that you referenced. And I think it may have even gone over 15%. That was investing for income. Nothing else seemed to be working. We sure weren't going to buy uh, stocks in our youth. We didn't have any real money. And we certainly weren't going to buy bonds because they were, you know, not worth much. And uh, but there was this idea that if you just put your money in the safest thing in a cash fund, you'd at least give with inflation. So uh, that's what we did. And it worked out fine. Now, I did have to have a 13 and a half percent mortgage, but we've sold and bought several houses and moved and refinanced. And that's a distant memory. The, the primary investment vehicle is the investment vehicle that kind of barely exists right now, which was just CD, not that it barely exists, but it's just not, does not enjoy the pride of place that it did at the time. Uh, that is uh, uh, CDs of one form or another. Correct. There's just nothing risk-free that pays much yield. I'm looking at the S&P 500 at that time, and the yield was just shy. This is one measurement period. There would have been others around there, but the number would have been roughly the same. Yields around 4.9%. That's towards the end of 1982. Payout ratio of the S&P 500 is 54%. Uh, so, you know, by today's standards, that's an, un <laughs> an outstanding yield, and you would have gotten income growth from that. The yield currently is less than 2%, around 1.75%, and the payout ratio is only about a third. But uh, yeah, if you're looking at uh, the the market with the yield of five uh, percent and a CD, which is guaranteed ish, guaranteed ish, with the yield of uh, low double digits, it's not that hard of a calculation to go with the uh, with the uh, CD. No, nope. and that's why we read stories about the death of equities and things like that. I mean, it was it, the idea was just to accumulate cash and wait for a better time. Did you, I, I do recall my own father uh, had, pre, had a mortgage with a very low interest rate from a prior time, and the, I think the bank was trying to get him to refinance or something like that. They wanted a low interest mortgage off of the, off of the books, but he, I don't recall what he ended up doing, but I just remember it seemed like a, an unusual experience at the time to be approached by the bank like that. Well, I didn't have that option. I had to find any financing that I could, and this was an FHA loan, which, of course, we qualified for. The rate was very high. Uh, a few years later, uh, in the early 1990s, when we sold that house, which was a townhouse, and bought a uh, single-family house in Montgomery County, Maryland, uh, we had a lot more money in the bank, and you know our salaries were higher, and we were older. But we had to get a loan that started out, I think it was about nine and an eighth percent, and it was an adjustable rate mortgage that was going to reset at 2% higher in three years, regardless of what went on in the market. It was a really bad loan. They just 
I guess were thinking they were doing me a favor by uh, financing it at all. And we were able to get rid of it and get a fixed rate loan. And, you know, like all of America now, you know, mortgages are pretty good deal. But at the time, uh, boy, it was the bank was not your friend. You were getting soaked whatever you did. So what what were you writing about in the, in the mid '80s when interest rates were that high? Were you choosing among uh, CDs, or were you trying to explain how the bond market works when interest rates are that high, or how equities might be attractive or not when interest rates are that high? Right, we were big on things like equity income funds, and um, uh, we were looking for anything that would provide a decent yield. A real estate investment trusts, uh, which were have always been a special interest of mine, uh, weren't as numerous, but they also weren't as well known. So they were they were an opportunity. They were young. There's a famous uh, REIT that was uh, based in, in the Washington area called Federal Realty Investment Trust that started developing mixed-use projects and buying old shopping centers and gussying them up. And as the economy grew, and that thing went from like $15 a share when I first got onto it to it's... You know, 120 or 140 or 150, it's probably fallen a little bit during this recent, you know, economic slump. But there were a lot of opportunities like that. Uh, utility stocks, which at the time were considered to be, you know, widows and orphans, well, they were also underappreciated because little did we know, but that became a growth industry because there were a lot of mergers and acquisitions and the economy grew and the demand for power um, started to grow. And so you had stocks like um, American Electric Power, um, they were priced almost like bonds, but they really were sort of like uh, sort of low-risk low growth stocks with a dividend kicker, and, and, and they've done very well. So there were some opportunities within the larger uh, field of equities that I think were not really followed, whereas at that time, that was the dot-com era, and that was the time when people were looking for big booming profits in the early wave of technology stocks, Microsoft when it was a kid and that kind of thing. And nobody cared about the, the dividend payers. And um, But, you know, look where they are now. So I, I believe the market's lowest yield hit 1.1%. I could be up 1.4, 1.1% during um, 19, uh, 1999, 2000, 2001 at the peak of NASDAQ. And uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to imagine how that would have compared with just 20 years uh, earlier uh, with everything in the teens and the S&P 500 at uh, a 5% yield. Were there, you know, what were the, the anomalous, if you can recall, you know, the bizarre story? So I, I won't mention, you can mention individual security names, uh, Jeff. I can't uh, because yes. of my day job. So right. I will not mention the name of the very stylish electric vehicle company that dominates the news flow today. Right. But in, in uh, it doesn't have a dividend, which is fine. It, it is what it is. But, uh, you know, what do, do you recall anything when you were covering the beat in the 80s and 90s? where you're trying to kind of stay sober and straightforward with income generation and then bam, this is prior to the internet bubble in the late nineties where, which yeah, was, there, were a lot of, there were a lot of mutual funds that formed. A lot of them were me too. You know, they, there wasn't any special expertise on the part of either the manager or the sponsor, but that were chasing after the, um, as I said, sort of that early wave of technology companies and, an awful lot of names that you might remember using their products but are long gone, like Wang, 
you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're the top things then. And so a lot of our readers, I think, decided that they still didn't trust the fact that inflation was going to be kind of quiet. They expected interest rates to go up. I mean, there's a sort of a negative bias among a lot of people that I hope isn't as prevalent today that um, inflation is always in the real world a lot higher than the, you know, the, the government readings or the, the bond traders uh, give it credit for. So they didn't really want to buy stuff like that. They were looking for big, you know, larping, you know, tub thumping capital gains. And I was looking for stuff that was left behind. And unfortunately, uh, the trading patterns of the day were that if something was out of favor, it was probably a stodgy dividend payer rather than a uh, an exciting growth stock. So a lot of the things that I wrote about either didn't do as well or they just sort of moseyed along at a time when people weren't really interested in moseying. And I have to say, as a member of the popular press, too, at that time, uh, we had a lot of competition in print and there was a lot of hype and there was it wasn't as bad as it got to be later with the Internet. But, you know, you put on a on a magazine cover, you know, 10 ways to, you know, double your money in these stocks, even if, you know, you could hold your nose that sold copies on the newsstand, especially if you had a nice photogenic young uh, couple, you know, in, in the photograph. If you wrote about um, stuff that was going to compound its dividends at eight and 10% a year, like Procter and Gamble or Johnson and Johnson, um, that didn't have the same cachet. So um, I kind of was on the sidelines some of the time. Did you get pushback from your employers, uh, Kiplingers, for all these years or from readers saying, why are you even bothering with this? I wouldn't call it pushback, but I motivated me sometimes to just write about other things like real estate or like uh, municipal bonds or, um, you know, uh, go looking for personal stories about, you know, people and how they're managing their portfolios rather than uh, concentrate on a particular income strategy or two. You mentioned the, uh, you know, the internet bubble, kind of the first peak in the decline of the market's yield. So again, in, in, in the early 80s, yield of just under 5%. The market hits its, its low yield in the, uh, S &P, for the S&P 500 in, uh, during the internet bubble. What, what was you know, writing at that very time? I mean, did you, were you just throwing up your arms and saying, it sounds like you just kept sticking to your knitting in very, very difficult times. But uh, again, it's, it must have been difficult, uh, in effect, uh, saying, hey, look at this utility when, you know, Pets.com is doing so well or, you know, whatever the, the various uh, companies were. Uh, th that must have been challenging psychologically, I should think. Or yeah, it, it I, don't, was. I don't know. It, it was. But, you know, everybody on the magazine had their own sort of viewpoint and their own beat. And we had different reporters and editors writing about different subjects like taxes or mortgages or buying cars or jobs and financing college. And, you know, we all got dragged into supporting one another on a lot of those subjects. So I wasn't like a full-time scouter of dividends and interest until about uh, in the, well into the 2000s, I'd say. So what was the, uh, you know, financials as we move forward from the internet bubble, which has kind of been parsed a lot. Let's move forward to the financial uh, crisis. Banks get wiped out. Uh, real estate investment trusts get wiped out. When I say wiped out, I mean the income. Uh, and yeah. 
in, in many cases, the stocks as well, and a lot of them disappear. I don't know if you were fully on the income beat at that time, but for us as, I, as an income manager, equity income manager, that was a very difficult period because unlike the internet bubble, which was somebody else's problem, the financial crisis was our problem. So how, how did that, you know, how did you compare that to the prior 10 years? The financial crisis of, of, of 2008 brought out a lot of crazy ideas. And I can remember getting letters and emails, which of course we didn't have back when I started, but now we have them, you know, from ordinary, you know, readers who were not financial professionals. They were educated people. They were, our typical reader was probably a small business owner or an engineer or they, uh, we had a lot of farmers and, and people like that. You know, they had a lot of money, but they had to manage it themselves. And they would start saying things like, geez, there aren't even going to be any dollars in another few years. You know, what do you think of uh, putting my money into uh, Swiss francs or into uh, looking for investments in Russia? Uh, how about buying land in Brazil? And And I'm sorry, but, you know, I focus on liquid and understandable investments and not you know fancy ideas or conspiracy theories or or stuff of that nature and i really remember when my colleague manny Schiffers, who's retired he was kind of like our stock market you know prophet um he wrote a piece that basically said the market will come back and everything is really cheap and if you're patient i mean there's no point in giving up and you know basically a lot of stocks were too cheap to sell and he was right. I mean, if you own General Electric at sixty dollars and it went down to single digits, the old General Electric, not the you know mm-hmm, the shell of it now, there was no point in getting out of it at six or nine or twelve. You may as well stick around and hope it would recover. It partially did. There are many other examples like that. But people really, if they were long-term investors in IRAs and four hundred one ks, as many of them were, um, we were trying to prevent them from committing suicide rather than, you know, expect trying to tell them that they're going to make their money back right away. Now, it sounds like uh, much of your recommendations or maybe the organization's recommendations were in the fund form in those early years in the 80s and 90s. Is is that is that a, a fair statement or is that uh, or was there also an equal weight to individual securities? No, I'd say funds were most of it. Uh, one of the things that we did a lot of work on was, uh, you know, ranking and evaluating mutual funds. Um, we were very familiar with the databases that were at that point were primitive, but were there. I remember taking a bunch of printouts from, from Lipper and from a, another company called Investment Company Data Inc. and um, taking them to a, uh, a swimming pool or a lake during the summer and just sitting there and um, going over them. And then we would write our October cover story, which was like, you know, the, the best mutual funds for every purpose or something like that. Um, we had very close relationships with just about every financial firm that sponsored uh, mutual funds that were marketed to the, to the mass audiences. And uh, there was a lot to like. There were, that was partly the era of the, you know, the great star fund manager uh, example, exemplified by Peter Lynch, but he was not alone. But it also was a time when people were just starting to start putting serious money into um, deferred retirement uh, plans and 
401ks and 403bs and variable annuities. So uh, there was a lot more interest in um, letting somebody else manage your money as opposed to the traditional idea of that goes back several generations where, you know, your father had a stockbroker who he played golf with and twice a month called him up and said, you know, I think it would be a good idea today to buy another 50 shares of Standard Oil. Uh, I came a little bit later than that here. So it was mostly mutual funds. And along came exchange traded funds and closed end funds and all these other gadgets. And um, the individual securities were sort of a second, um, uh, they, they were secondary. So having observed, I, won't, I don't know if it was the prime time of funds, you've also observed almost essentially a maybe not 40 year, but 30 year call it decline of traditional funds to some extent in favor of the exchange traded funds uh, based on uh, passive uh, low cost index vehicles. How, how is Kiplinger, how have you viewed that? And, and again, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I would call it conflicted, but I, I do work for, uh, as listeners know, for an active manager. So uh, I'll try to be as neutral as possible. Uh, in this setting, I have been quite unneutral in other settings about that. But reflecting upon the rise of uh, low-cost passive, all you, sh- you know, it, it is essentially, if you watch the popular media now, it's viewed, and I don't know if this is Kiplinger's, and if it is, that's fine. But from my perch, uh, much of the media simply says, if you're an investor and you own anything other than a close to zero cost, all market exposure, you're crazy, which from my perspective is itself crazy. But that is, that's the standard knowledge right now. How, how did, you know, you saw that, I would call it slow motion train wreck, but you, you saw that happen and develop in real time. I kind of showed up after it was already the case. How do you, how do you view that? Well, I don't buy it now. And after, at the time, I admit that things like, you know, the Vanguard S&P 500 and, and all that, you know, index funds, they were a new toy and they were cheap. And some people really, really, really almost made their investment decisions based on two factors. One, there had to be no load and two, there had to be minimal expense ratios. And that's been proven to be, you know, not always the case. I be, Especially as I got more into bonds and more into things like preferred stocks and, and real estate investment trusts. I became much more an advocate of active fund management, and I still am very much so. But at the time, um, you kind of had to address what was going on in the marketplace. I mean, we're news reporters and journalists. We're not just, you know, we're not strictly, you know, financial advisors. And um, that was just too big of a story to miss. I must have done seven conversations in person with Jack Vogel, either just myself or with my colleagues who, we heard that story over and over and over again. And then we saw many of the other firms, you know, chase Vanguard and start up ETFs and index funds. But um, I go back now and I look at some things I was just looking before a few minutes before we came on here at, at the uh, this big uh, preferred stock index fund, PFF. It's a iShares um, preferred fund. And over 10 years, I believe, the return has been about 4% a year um, annualized. The uh, closed-end fund PFD run by an outfit that many people have never heard of called Flaherty and Crumrine out from Pasadena, California, but who are raging experts about preferred stocks. This made like two and a half times that return. And it is a 100% an active management shop. 
um, the, the the less liquid the the asset or the smaller the you know category, the more active management pays off. So the only place I really endorse indexing is like as a core, maybe having an S and P 500 or a Dow Jones clone or maybe a total bond fund, you know, total bond market fund as 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 a centerpiece, but only for you know part of what you're doing. I definitely uh, endorse active strategies, whether you're buying mutual funds or whether you're buying other kinds of securities. Thank you, and and uh, appreciate your advocacy of active management, at least in, as you say in the less liquid areas. In regard to the specific products and managers that you named, just uh, just to be clear with our listeners uh, from the SEC, that those are the comments of of my guest, not me. Uh, uh, again, pretty strict in in not well, we can, we can, the products. We can declare that Jack Bogle is a historical figure and not you know actually a fund manager. Jack's no no no. Jack's fine. We can mention Jack uh, uh, in particular. As of the last, you know, month, twelve months or so, we can definitely discuss him. Right. But uh, the preferred manager. But right. I, I, yeah, I, you can edit that out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I won't. I'll just add my disclaimer. So, as you point out, there, and from my perspective, it, it is also the case there are certain parts of the market which are more efficient—a highly loaded word—and there are parts of the market which are less efficient. I think one of the points we were making, kind of in the green room before when we were chatting before we started recording was the information differential between 1982 and now. You were you know, describing how, how difficult it was to get information about funds or even individual securities in, in, the, in the 80s. Can you, just to kind of shock some of the readers, can you tell some of those tales? Because for all of us sitting at our computers and having essentially unlimited access, which is one wonders whether it's a good idea or not having that access to that. It's better to have that access. It certainly made my job possible. I, my favorite story on this is back in the eighties when um, I was, you know, doing economic reporting too, and I would have to get somebody in the various, um, you know, federal agencies to send me uh, printed co- hard copies of, you know, the jobs numbers or the unemployment figures or the, um, you know, inflation data, whatever. And oftentimes that meant um, calling up somebody. Unfortunately, our offices were in Washington, D.C., which was a convenience, and saying, um, could, could you do me a big favor? Could you print out for me, like, you know, the um, jobs growth numbers by every metropolitan area, uh, you know, comparing the present to, like, you know, the last few times so that we could, you know, take it from there. And one time I remember on a day that it was about 95 degrees going over to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which was a pretty good walk even from the nearest metro station. I was on a serious deadline. I'd been told to like go to room 852 and there'd be an envelope there with my name on it. And I get to the building and I'm you know sweating like a pig and wearing a suit and tie back then. And um, there's this huge line of like telephone technicians waiting to get into the building. And I've got my, you know, House and Senate press credentials and all the ID in the world. And I didn't really have like 15 or 20 minutes or I was impatient or I was just hot. So I, I walked in front of all these people. I showed the guard my ID, and, you know, and I said, all I'm doing is going to this room in the eighth floor 
picking up an envelope that somebody's got for me and that's fine. And they said, do you know the name of this person? And there wasn't a name of a person. It was just, you know, somebody who would, you know, print something out. So I said, look, I'm not, I don't mean any harm. I got in the elevator. I went up to the eighth floor. And as I got, as the elevator closed, I heard the security guard calling for the law. And, um, I grabbed, I got to the eighth floor. I grabbed the envelope. I went down the back stairs. I exited the rear exit of the Bureau of Labor Statistics onto like Third Street Northwest. And I got lost for about 10 minutes until I figured nobody was coming after me. I mean, My gosh. We had to do. Okay. So did, uh, were there repercussions? Did they end up finding you or, or making no, any effort? There were no repercussions, but okay. there could but I'm saying a lot of time was wasted on mm-hmm. uh, logistics and asking for stuff to be mailed or eventually it could be faxed. But you never had the ability to just sit at your desk. And especially right now when we're all working remotely. I mean, I have not been in my office in 2020. And, and, and here it is all in front of you. I can't conceive of how it used to be, you know, 30 years ago, but I did live it. So let's let's kind of get to the present now. So things are easier from an information perspective, but the it's it's harder from uh, from an income perspective. I I operate in one corner of the market, uh, the stock market, trying to generate income from equities. Uh, but as you pointed out, you have access to free reign. You've been running a income oriented newsletter, very successful. Uh, Kiplinger's investing for income for almost a decade. But we are at the period of uh, you know negative real rates, very low uh, nominal rates in every asset category. It's uh, it's so different from when you began. What you know? How, how are you feeling now compared to whatever challenges there were in in, in uh, you know the death of stocks in 1982 and when, when you just buy a CD? Is it is this harder, easier, more frustrating, less frustrating? It's it's less frustrating, and I have a couple of counterintuitive comments here that are definitely not what you would get for most people in my line of work and definitely you wouldn't get from the you know typical popular investment books that you would buy i mean i have enormous respect for many of the authors of of, of great books um you know and people like larry swedro and um uh jeremy siegel but you pick up something like that and they'll tell you like never buy a preferred stock uh, never buy a closed-end fund be really, really careful of, quote, reaching for yield. I'm not talking about buying something that is, you know, temporarily priced to yield 27% when you know they're going to go under. But if you can get a decent spread on an investment that has been around for a long time and that isn't going to go belly up, even if the principal value might erode, uh, over time, I think you're going to be better off. And therefore, I am really proud of the fact that I've been a big advocate for uh, utilities and and, and REITs and uh, leveraged closed-end bond funds and things of that nature that at least since 2009 have just been wonderful. They really, really, really um, provided both not only excess yield, but, but alpha because there's so much money chasing so few of these securities. And then we've had other developments like taxable municipal bonds, which are popular with foreign investors, foreign with pension funds, foreign with popular with non-traditional buyers. The supply of them is really, really low, and the demand for them is high. Um, 
back in the days of the Obama administration, there was a program created called Build America Bonds, taxable mutual funds, uh, taxable municipal bonds that were partly subsidized by the federal government. And, you know, they came out with coupons of seven and eight and 6.75%, and they're still out there. And they were sold at par, and now they're trading for 150 and 160, and all this stuff has just been gold. And so there's been a lot of opportunity to buy investments that have a bigger coupon than you would think, and have you have managed to uh, to outperform in a material way. Well, that's indeed counterintuitive given how low interest rates are. That, but you've had to leave the main part of the market. It is true, but you know it, it reflects your effort and the effort of those investors to look into some of these other corners of the market when the main part of the market, whether it's the stock market or the bond market or the treasury market, isn't, isn't very helpful anymore for that, for that exercise. Uh, that is correct. And I understand that you can get your, you know, comeuppance at times. And we had the events of uh, March and April of 2020. But on a fundamental basis, when there are all kinds of investors, both individual and professional, with cash to burn, partly because, I mean, look, there's a lot of cash out there that federal government and the Treasury have created it. And there aren't that many high quality or reliable investments to buy anymore after a decade of uh, mergers and um, bankruptcies and, and, and other consolidations. I mean, there's a lot of money out there vying for fewer and fewer opportunities. And Therefore, until the economy or the market really collapses and and, you know, I don't know what lies ahead, frankly, with the uh, possibility of, uh, you know, uh, this coronavirus uh, shutdown not going away. But up until this year, um, you have benefited from taking what I would call moderate risks that many people would eschew and not only would not take, but would. Um, you know, would would criticize in a very, you know, sharp and harsh way that I think was, um, you know, not right. And I've had I've had friendly but, you know, rather testy conversations with, you know, uh, financial planners and uh, individual investment advisors about my views. And in one way, that Kiplinger's investing for income became my personal soapbox for writing about stuff that yielded five and six and eight percent that has done well. And it's at least up to now, it's, it's been the right view. Any, any changes that you see post COVID? And I think it, this is where we, we tell the listeners, Jeff, literally just a few weeks ago, retired. He remains a writer for uh, Kiplinger's um, investing for income, but after he, he uh, has formally kind of uh, hung up his pistols uh, and so is now uh in a position, again, having started in 82 with Kiplinger's and now as a just a writer for Kiplinger's as opposed to an editor uh, and and uh, full time employee, you know, any any sense what this time is different as coming out of, of COVID, you know, just just from the perspective of your experience and how investing cycles work. And then we had this shock to the system. Many people are just assuming we're going back to normal in a short period of time. Others are saying everything's going to change permanently. You're now a free agent and can say whatever you want. Please do. Well, I pretty much have been allowed to say whatever I want anyway, but you're right. Thank you. 
Um, I do think that we're going to have some changes here. One is that, uh, once again, uh, everybody now seems to be in thrall to a shrinking number of key securities. Um, the idea that these um, handful of, uh, quote, FANG stocks and other uh, market bellwethers can continue to go up and up and up and up and up forever. Uh, when we've seen that before, it's generally collapsed. Uh, I'd be worried about that. I really wish there were more good um, sort of mid-sized stocks of the sort that you probably hunt for that were you know, paid a sustainable dividend and that would grow you know, at a moderate pace. Um, I think also that a lot of investors, unfortunately, have um, fallen into the trap of thinking that there's something fundamentally wrong with our economy because growth has been 2%, 2.5% at a good time instead of what it was back in the 50s or 60s or, or, or in somebody's imagination. An environment when you have 2% growth, basically 2% interest rates, although they're less than that now, and a 2% yield on, on the S&P or on a municipal bond or something like that is a good, calm, reassuring investment climate. And we've had a lot of that since the recession of 2009. I want us to get back to that, but I'm afraid that the people are going to be too impatient to do too many policy things as a result of this virus that, that may not work. And we could have a resurgence of inflation. We could have a resurgence of interest rates going higher than they otherwise would have. Um, there's a lot of unknowns out there. So I, uh, I wouldn't be as relaxed as it sounds like maybe, you know, many of us are with the market at you know, near record highs and bond returns well in the green and, and, and so forth. Yeah, I, I had the chance to read several of your your columns and pieces over the last few years, and, and there's a common theme, and it seems to be what you would recommend after 40 years of, of doing this, and it appears over, in, in addition to income, but it is, it's patience. It's ride things out, yeah. and it, it, it appears over and over again in your, in your writing. You know, that might be a kind of a good place to, to wrap up 40 years of uh, investment journalism, investment experience, investment uh, participation. W what, you know, what are your, your, your recommendations to the 30 or 40-year-old? I think your recommendation to the 60 and 70-year-old is pretty straightforward. You, it's really, really, really well documented in all of your Kiplinger's material. But how about to the 30 or 40-year-old that, that might be listening and is just puzzled by everything they see in the capital markets? Yeah, they got a tougher road to hoe than the retired people that have lots of money and can even do the thing I call take a knee, which is like the quarterback at the end of the game, just say, I got enough money, I'm declaring victory. Uh, there's no chance for anything to go wrong. There's a lot of chances for things to go wrong. Um, I think that people are going to have to embrace uh, some of the things other than the S&P 500 and, and treasury bonds and take a few more chances and hope that they can spread what they can save around uh, to enough good managers who can add some value. It's hard because, um, you know, you see where the Dow is, you see where the S&P 500 is, you see how low bond yields are. There's no obvious great value here. I've spent most of my career trying to stop people from doing stupid things. And um, 
I think there's going to be a lot more need for patience and, uh, you know, calm and, and not overreacting. And the people who have 30 or 35 years before they retire and who unfortunately are not going to get pensions because they've been pretty much, you know, abolished and probably not going to get the benefit of the great run up in, in real estate values, which may be already unwinding. Um, they've got a tough time and I really feel for them. Um, I have a niece and a nephew who are about 30. They have nice professional careers, but you know, their personal financial outlook is, is cloudy. And so I wish I could make it easier for, for this cohort, but I really can't. But I would say that, you know, the two things that people would have to do would be one, keep putting money away anyway. You have to save and invest. And two, think a little bit outside the box, not too far outside the box, you know, not talking about China and India and Brazil or, you know, um, IPOs of uh, cannabis companies or something like that. But um, you have to you have to be patient and you have to hope that this will work out again. Jeff, thank you so much. Uh, Jeff Kosnett, 40 years at Kiplinger's, just under 40 years at Kiplinger's, the person behind Kiplinger's investing for income, regular columnist at Kiplinger's personal finance. It's really been a pleasure to have you on the show and, and uh, wish you well in your sort of retirement because you're not really fully completely retired, but we certainly wish you well. And, and I, I thank you again for being on the show. Thank you very much.